0: Turn to James, chapter 1, verse 1. We've got some handouts back there, uh, if you need them. Um, James 1, 1. All right, let me get there with you. We're in different territory now, right? We're way out of the Pauline epistles now. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, so it's going to be a little different. And we got five chapters. we got 108 verses. we got just over 2,300 words. The author is James um, place it around 60 A.D., kind of early. Uh, now, this is the conundrum because the Lord wrote the Bible in such a way that you really got to want to know what the answer is to find it out because there's like three Jameses among you know, the followers of Christ that are writing things. And, and it's, a, <laughs> it's a challenge to say, which James is the James that wrote the book of James? Because you got James, the son of Zebedee, you got James the son of Alphaeus, who's called also called Thaddeus. And you got James the Lord's brother, that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and ends up being in Acts chapter 15, probably the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So you got these three Jameses that are all in the Lord's like circle, and they're all following Jesus Christ, and all could have written the book. Who do I think it is? Who should you think it is? Well, I'm gonna say um, a lot of Bible. Commentators are going to say it 's james the lord 's brother, which makes no sense to me, uh, and i 'll tell you why I think it 's James the son of Zebedee, uh, one of the sons of thunder. Uh, james, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod in Acts chapter twelve. Remember when Herod takes off james 's head he 's taken off the head of of James the son of Zebedee, and that 's very early in the book of Acts and early in the gospel ministry, and most importantly it's before the Apostle Paul begins really preaching his gospel of the grace of God. And that's significant because the book of James shows no influence of Pauline doctrine. You don't see smattering of it in the book of James. And by the time James is writing the book of James early, Paul is still Saul, right? So there's no Apostle Paul, there's no missionary journeys. You see the influence of Paul on john's gospel because john wrote his gospel very late right probably towards the end of the first century so you see some pauline influence in the writings of john but you don't see any of that influence in the writings of james because if it's the james the son of zebedee that i think it is he was dead and in heaven and off the scene long before paul ever really started preaching you say well why couldn't it be james the lord's brother because paul met james the lord's brother Galatians chapter 2, he actually talks about meeting him at the Council of Jerusalem. So how could that James be the author? Because he was influenced by Pauline doctrine. He had heard Paul preach. He had spoke to Paul. He had agreed with Paul about some things. So, and James kind of gets a little sideways. James, the Lord's brother, gets a little sideways in the book of Acts anyway. So to me, the safest bet is James, the son of Zebedee, killed early, killed before knowing Paul and his doctrine makes the most sense to me. Now, James 1.1. 1, 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, right now, we talked about the author. How about the audience? The audience of James is clearly the twelve tribes. It says it right there. How do you know? It says it. Who is it written to? The twelve tribes scattered abroad. Now, who is that? Well, historically... get some parallels historically nebuchadnezzar who is a type of antichrist he scattered the nation in the past right historians say 606 bc he comes in and ransacks jerusalem and the people of god are just scattered everywhere they go into captivity and they're literally scattered you say why is that significant because doctrinally the antichrist will scatter the nation again in the great tribulation So when he talks about the 12 tribes scattered abroad, these are people going through tribulation. So right away you're not past the first verse of James and you see a Jewish context and a tribulation context. And the book of James reminds us that the first rule of Bible study is context. Context is king. A text without a context is a pretext. That's somebody trying to pull something out of the air to make it say something they want it to say. Always check the context first. And if you want context, all right, you got, you got Paul's letters to the church, all right? Paul writes to the church, and that is Romans to Philemon, All right? So there is your church epistles. There are your church letters. It starts with the book of Romans. Right? That's your your doctrinal book. All right? That's your book of doctrine. And then you read from Romans to Philemon, and you see all those things that the Lord writes to the church, for the church. That is, this is our mail. Right? This is our mail. This is written to us, and it's written for us. It's my mail, right? God wrote this to me. Now, I could find the letter that was written to you and learn something about you and the person that wrote it to you, but it's not my mail. It was written not to me, right? But I learned something. Now, the next set of letters is we talk about, um, these are the Pauline letters. These are called sometimes the general epistles. We'll talk about why they're not really general. And the general epistles are directed to, towards Israel, and those are, those are Hebrews, I'm just going to do the epistles, through the book of Jude. I know Revelation is part of that, sort of, but it's not really a letter. Hebrews, as we said last week, is the book of doctrine. So it just kind of repeats, right? Same setup. Starts with the book of doctrine and lays things out. So that's, that's to give you a little context about what's happening in the New Testament, right? This is not my mail. This is somebody else's mail. I learn a lot from somebody else's mail. Man, if I wrote, opened up a letter that your wife might have written you, man, I'd learn a lot about you, your wife, your relationship, but that's not my mail. It was, I learned something from it, but it's not written to me. This is written to me, and this is written for me. This might be written for me to learn, but it's not written to me. So I got to be very careful how I apply the things from Hebrews to the book of Jude. It's somebody else's mail. Hebrews, as we said last week, is a Transitional book going from church doctrine to Jewish doctrine, from church doctrine to tribulation doctrine, from kingdom of God back to kingdom of heaven, where God's plan is beginning to pivot after the rapture. And James 1:1. Now they call this the general epistles. Your Bible might call them the general epistles because they want to pretend like we don't know who they're written to. Right? The book of Corinthians is written to the Corinthians. The book of Galatians is written to the churches of Galatia. The book of Colossians is written to the brethren at Colossae. So they're not general, they're specific and precise. They call these the general epistles because they're not maybe written to a congregation. However, he says in verse 1, to the 12 tribes. So the general epistles is kind of like not really, I'd I'd probably call them the Jewish epistles, I don't know if I'd call them the general epistles, right? I would like to call them the Jewish epistles because James reminds you the Jewish slant that is on all of these epistles from Hebrews, which it starts us off, all the way through the book of, of, of Jude. Now, you say, how do I handle this? Well, if this is your mail and this is not your mail, if you find something in the Bible that doesn't line up with Paul, apply it to somebody else doctrinally that's all you follow paul's doctrine for the church all the way but if i find something in the book of hebrews that talks about losing my salvation i don't get nervous i just say wait a second that's not my mail it was written to me that means i must apply to another group in the bible and the Bible gives us three groups, Jew, Gentile, Church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. So I have to ask myself, huh, I know it's given to the Church of God, that's Romans to Philemon. If it's not lining up with that, it must be for a Jew or it must be for a lost Gentile. It has to be for one of those other two groups. It's not as complicated as people want to make it seem. <laughs> Your male is Romans to Philemon, you apply that to yourself all the way. Anything that lines up with that, go for it. But when something crosses that... It doesn't apply to you. It must apply to somebody else. And you'll see a lot of that in Hebrews and James. We'll see some tonight where it's going to clearly contradict things Paul told us. I don't throw it out of my Bible. I don't get scared. I don't go, oh, the Bible doesn't make sense. No, it means it's written to somebody else. I just have to apply it to another group and search the scriptures to rightly divide the word of truth. It's not as hard. Just got to takes a little study. Um, some key words there. You got the word works 13 times. Faith 12 times, doer 5 times, right? Big words. We'll talk about them. Please notice verse 3 of chapter 1. That's going to be our key verse. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So, the key idea of this whole book is the trying of your faith through tribulation is going to work patience in you. That's what the whole book is about the trying of your faith in struggle and difficulty is going to help you develop patience. Now, for the nation of Israel, that tribulation is going to be a time period called the Great Tribulation. Three and a half years of basically hell on earth, that happened after the rapture. And that tribulation is going to work patience in the people of God, the children of Israel. That is the doctrinal application of that verse number three. The spiritual application of that verse is us, right? Look at James chapter five. Look at James chapter five. For the church, it's not the time period called the great tribulation. It's the experience of great tribulation. Because guess what? You and I are going to go through some great tribulation. You're going to lose loved ones, lose friends, face temptation, face difficulty. It's not the antichrist on the earth. It's just you dealing with that spirit that's against God and trying to make you quit. So yes, you're not going through the time period called the great tribulation that's happening to this group, but you will experience great tribulation as an experience that you might go through down here. And the things we learned from Israel going through the great tribulation can help you spiritually going through your tribulation, right? That's the parallel of the book. Look at James chapter five, verse eleven. It says, "Behold, we count them happy which endure." Right now, the doctrinal application of that verse is for the nation of Israel, because the nation of Israel has to endure the tribulation to be saved. Jesus even told them in Matthew chapter 24, which, by the way, is all about the great tribulation, he said, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom, right? That is the message in the tribulation. Hold on, keep going, don't quit, Jesus is coming. That is how that nation is going to get spared, escape the Antichrist, and make it to the revelation of Jesus Christ at the second coming. That's the doctrine application. Endure the Antichrist. Endure the plagues. Endure the world hunting you. All right? And if you don't see the anti-Semitism on the rise, you're crazy. It is like rising to a fever pitch. And Sometimes I think Netanyahu's helping throw flames on the fire, but that's, that's another story. But it is really getting hot, and the world is real. You could see them really stoking that hatred for that little nation. It's like right in people's throats. They're so angry at them. It's like right there. And that's going to be full-blown in the Great Tribulation where they're going to want to push that little country into the sea. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So the church is going to go through tribulation also, not as a time period, but as an experience. We're going to go through, Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Right? The Bible says, knowing through, through tribulation, the Bible says we'll enter the kingdom of God. We're going to go through things. So we can spiritualize a lot of this. And Jesus Christ is portrayed as our pattern. We need to follow a pattern when we're in trouble, follow a pattern to get us out of trouble. Jesus is that pattern. So the breakdown of the book you see on your, on your sheet there, I hope, is pretty easy. Chapters 1 to 3, it's our faith shown outwardly in our tribulation. When we're going through something, what about our words and our actions show our faith, right? Key word is going to be the word works, right? So chapters 1 to 3 about our faith shown outwardly through our words and our works outside ourselves. Chapters 4 to 5 is our faith shown inwardly in our struggles. Not through our actions, not through our words, but through our humility, through our prayer. That's what chapters 4 and 5 are about, the inward expression of that faith. 1 to 3, outward expression. 4 to 5, inward expression as we go through tribulation. We good so far? You got the basics? All right, somebody come up here and teach the rest of the book now. Okay, no. All right, that would be great. All right, <clears throat> one day we'll do that. One day we'll have you guys... Teach these books, and I'll I'll fall asleep. Uh, James, I'm I'm kidding. James, chapter one. Let's go now, and let's pull out some pictures and important truths in the book of James. Right? There's a lot of pictures in here. Lots of metaphors. Lots of imagery. Let's just pull out some of them. James one, verse five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What's our first picture? Our first picture is the unstable soul is pictured as a wave, right? Somebody that's wavering. A wave that's tossed with the wind. That's our first picture in the book of James, this picture of the wave. Now, that brings up a very big problem in the church today and a big problem for the nation of Israel in the future the problem of instability. That God's people are just unstable, they're like a wave. You can't build anything on a wave. There's no rest, there's no peace when you're unstable, when you're tossed with every wind of doctrine. God wants to establish you, and we start with a big problem, that even God's people are like waves. There's no rest. They keep moving, they're not settled, they're uneasy, they're anxious all the time. Why? Because they're like waves. Pastor Dean, my my beloved pastor back in Staten Island, he would always say in the last few years that the trademark of Christians today is that they're unstable. They're double-minded and they're unstable. When you're double-minded, you're like a nut. You just, you just, you can't settle on something. You're over here for a little while, then you're over here. Oh yeah, if I talk to this person, you'll do the right thing. Then you talk to this knucklehead, you're doing the wrong thing. God says you've got to become established. Because if you're unstable, think about if tribulation is the context of the book of James, if you're unstable, how are you going to handle the pressure? How are you going to survive when tribulation comes? You understand two-thirds of Israel perishes in the tribulation. Why? Because they're unstable. They're not settled on anything about God or any doctrine about God. They're going to perish. They're going to follow that antichrist right into hell, literally. Right, Because they're not stable, they're not grounded, they're not rooted. And we can spiritualize that. Hey, if you don't have some things, if you don't have some mooring set about what you believe and who God is and how you should live your life, guess what? When the wind starts a-blowing, you're going to go down real easy. Real easy, man. When the storms of life come in, you see who's who. You see who's who. You see who stands. It doesn't mean they're supermen or superwomen. They just stand, and you see who folds you know, just like somebody folds. All right, look at James chapter 5. I'll show you this. What's the solution for this? This is in James chapter 5, verse 8. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. The solution for instability is to make up your mind and get established. The root word of established is Stable right? Get stable. God wants to settle you and establish you, First Peter I think talks about. So how do you do that? Make up your mind. Decide. The word decide means decision is to cut off all your other options. If God be true, let every man be a liar, right? What did Elijah tell the people outside at the, at the contest among the prophets of Baal? He said, hey, how long halt ye between two opinions? You're going back and forth, you worship in God one day, and you worship in the club the other day, and you worship in God one day, and then you worship at the temple the next day. He says, Hey, if the Lord be God, serve him. If Baal, then serve him. Make up your mind. That's how you get stable, right? Stop being double minded. Let's go back to James chapter 1. Let's look at the next picture. Now he starts going after the rich guys. It's James chapter 1, verse number 9. The Bible says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, oh, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. So the rich man... The rich man is going to be as a flower of the grass. You see me like a daffodil? No, like grass actually produces a very small flower, a little spikelets. It produces a very small flower to help it spread its seed and procreate and reproduce. And so he's saying the same way grass tries to spread and make more grass, that's how the rich man is going to get cut down when the sun rises up. So, The rich man is pictured as that flower of the grass. say, why is that significant? Because given the tribulation context, look at how much James has to say about the rich. Look at this. Verse 111, he says, the rich man at the end of the verse will fade away in his ways. That's not good. How about chapter 2? Look at chapter 2. Almost every chapter he says something about the rich. Chapter 2, verse number 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren... Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor." Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called. Put yourself in the tribulation and see how the rich man will be oppressing the people of God, actually hailing them before the judgment seat and persecuting them. Look at chapter 5. Another condemnation about the rich. 5 verse 1. Go to now, ye rich men... Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped together treasure together for the last days. Wow, the rich man's going to weep and howl. Read through Ezekiel. Read through the Minor Prophets. Read where it talks about in the Tribulation people howling and in despair for the judgments that's coming upon them you say why don't you understand what's happening in the tribulation the antichrist is setting up an economic system and the people that prescribe will do well and there's people that are going to side with the antichrist and be doing well and going after the people of god and joining in, in the persecution of the people of god and god says judgment's going to come upon you guys you know in first timothy chapter six it's an interesting study the Bible uses this word um, perdition just a couple of times. It means loss and destruction. He calls the Antichrist the son of perdition. in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, God connects perdition to the love of money. He says that's the root of all evil, right. the love of money. Not money, because you need money, right? But the love of money is the root of all evil which, while some coveted after, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And he says he connects that to perdition. Let me just flip over there, 1 Timothy 6. I'll just show you because I'm half-quoting, misquoting. um, 1 Timothy 6, if you look down by verse number 9, the Bible says, now watch it now, 1 Timothy 6, 9. Well, don't read 7 and 8. It'll spoil your American dream. But um, verse 9 says, But they that will be rich... They want it, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money, see how it's connected, is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so I... I, understand why God is leveling so much judgment against the rich in the book of James, because those rich people in that tribulation context, they're part of that evil system. I mean, don't you see how the world is going that way? Like, do you know, you you might not know, some of you might know, do you know how much wealth was transferred from the middle class during covid you know how much money people have lost over the last few years and how this small little group at the top keeps getting richer and richer what, what's the song though the rich get richer and the poor get children right the rich just keep getting richer and the poor just keep getting poorer and that's by design the rich are just accumulating wealth accumulating wealth they use pandemic they'll use anything they kind of monopolize and they steal that wealth from the middle class they're abolishing the middle class they're wiping and this is not political this is factual they're wiping the middle class out because that's how Marxist communities go. That's how Marxism works. You got to get rid of the middle. You need a little oligarchy at the top and everybody else at the bottom that's under them. And uh, in Marxist countries like Cuba, you have this rich oligarchy at the top and all these peasants underneath them. And that's where this thing is moving like these rich men that are going to sit at the top of that pyramid, and then everybody else is going to be that little serf, that little slave underneath them, trying to just make ends meet. That's the way the devil's taking it. It's going to get to a place in the tribulation where God's going to say, "Hey, rich men, you like oppressing people? Your days are numbered." And He says, "When that in verse eleven, if you go back to actually go back to Psalm forty-nine. Go to Psalm forty-nine. Now look, the Bible says." charge them that are rich in this world that they, you know, they use their money for the right thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with God blessing you with money. That's not it at all. It's the love of money. You know, guess what? Church buildings are very expensive. <laughs> Tickets to mission fields are very expensive. Uh, tracks, Bibles, they're expensive You put something on a boat To send out to Nini in the Philippines, that's expensive Hey, if God's given you some money, God bless you Use some of it for the glory of God God's entrusted you with something There's nothing wrong with God blessing you with some money I know some guys that are very well off And they use it for the glory of God, and they can handle it Clearly, I probably can't handle it That's why God hasn't given me too much of it But there's nothing wrong with money, money's just a thing It's the love of money is the root of all evil And because Psalm forty nine, we said that he likens those rich men to the flower of grass. The flower of grass is what helps it reproduce and continue and spread. God says, "Like that flower of grass, I'm going to cut you down." You say, "Why?" Because look at Psalm forty nine verse ten. Psalm forty nine verse ten. Let me get there with you. I told you to get there, and then I'm just going to stall now. Psalm forty nine ten. The Bible says, "For he seeth that wise men die." Likewise, the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is this is the ones that are wealthy that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. You see, the rich man thinks he's going to go on forever. He's building his bunkers. He's, you read about these rich people that are building bunkers on these islands? Like, what do they know is coming that you and I don't know, right? They're building these bunkers. They're building these little storage places. You know, they're going to prepare for something, so they can just go on in their Shangri-La-La-La. You know what? And God says they think they're just going to live forever. You know who died this week? One of the Rothschilds died this week. One of the richest people in the world. You know where he is? Heaven or hell. He's <laughs> are not continuing forever. I have a suspicion as to where he is, but I won't you know, venture that from the pulpit, but I, I think he might have gone to door number two, not door number one, but I can't speak for any man's heart. But guess what? That rich man, that powerful man, he's not continuing forever. And God says, you guys think you're going to continue forever? You're just going to keep passing on your legacy? No, like the grass gets cut down when the sun rises and burns it up in an oven? That's what I'm going to do to you guys. In James chapter 1, that's what he says. Look what he says in James 1, 11. <clears throat> James one eleven. you might want to stick something in James James 1.11 he says for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat who is the sun a picture of Jesus Christ the son of righteousness what is that heat God's judgment stuff getting thrown in the oven he says when that sun rises when Jesus Christ comes back when the son of righteousness rises guess what he's going to burn up all that chaff and those guys that have been worshiping their money and prescribing to the beast, guess what? They're going to face that judgment when Jesus Christ returns. So let's keep going, James 1.12. Now we've got not so much a picture, not so much a metaphor, but we've got two types of temptation alluded to. It looks like a contradiction in your Bible. James 1:12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now we're going to see two different kinds of temptation. I like to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud, just answer it in your head. Does God tempt people? You said that, that verse seems to say no. Well, Genesis chapter 22, remember when God took Isaac on the mountain up with Abraham? You know what the Bible says that God did to Abraham? Genesis 22 says, God did tempt Abraham. So do we have a problem? Do we have a contradiction in our Bible? It says over here, God doesn't tempt, and in Genesis chapter 22 it says, God did tempt Abraham. Is there a contradiction? No. There's two types of temptations. God tempts you with things you love, like your Isaac. He'll ask you to put your Isaac on the altar. He'll ask you to take something precious, like a dream or a strength or a passion or maybe a child, and say, will you give that to me? God tempts you with things you love, like he tempted Abraham by asking him to offer up his only son that he loved. But the flesh, the world, tempts you with things you lust. See what it says in James? It says, verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. It doesn't say God doesn't tempt you. It just says God won't tempt you with evil. God won't tempt you with your lust. God will tempt you by asking you to lay down something you love. He'll not ask you to pursue something you lust. God's not flashing that girl in front of you. God's not flashing that dollar sign in front of you. God's saying, hey, would you give me your time? Would you give me your money? Would you give me your heart? Would you give me your family? God's asking you to give up things you love. The world is tempting you with things you lust after. So while the Lord may ask you to lay your all on the altar, he's not going to ask you to sin. Now remember, this is the tribulation. And what's the Antichrist going to be tempting people with? Stuff they lust after. Pleasure, comfort, food, security. He's going to tempt them with that. God says, I'm not going to tempt you with evil. I'm going to tempt you to lay your life down, to give up something you love. The world, the flesh, is going to tempt you with something and for something you lust. Does that difference make sense? No contradiction. James chapter 1, verse 23. Here's another thing. 23. For any, uh, Verse 22. But be ye doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway, forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So we see right here, we see the word of God is likened to a looking glass. The word of God is likened to a mirror, a looking glass. Now, I could tell by looking at you that you all looked at yourselves in a mirror before leaving your house today. If not, it would be a pretty scary auditorium. You'd be a really funky-looking individual if you didn't at least look at one mirror before you walked out of your house. You check your hair, you check your eyes, you check your teeth. Do I have my pants on backwards, right? Do I have pants on at all, right? You're trying to make sure that you're checking yourself out in that mirror. How many people, by a show of hands, at least looked at themselves in a mirror once before walking out today? Once? Matt, not you, Matt. You just, you just walk out the door and go? <laughs> not today. <laughs> not today. All right. There's an honest man in the house. Just stay away from Matt. All right? He might not, you know. But anyway, you looked at yourselves in a mirror before leaving your house. I wonder... Did you look into the perfect law of liberty before going about your day? We'll get in front of the mirror and we'll check our, you know, know, we'll check everything out, make sure everything's looking good so we don't make a fool of ourselves out there, but we will not look into the perfect law of liberty to make sure we're looking all right spiritually before we head out there. If you took some time to look into the perfect law of liberty, you'd walk in liberty. You'd have some liberty out there instead of being in bondage. You know what? You know what happens? Like a mirror... God's word shows you who you are, right? Doesn't that Bible show you who you are? It see when you get in front of a mirror, well nobody uses a mirror now. That's what my my students do. I'll walk by them and they'll be like, you know, looking in their phone, and I'll be like, you look good, you look good, you look good. And they look in their phone. Why? Because they've got an image in their mind of what they know they should look like, and they look at the mirror and they can form themselves to the image of what they know they should look like. See the parallel? When you look into your Bible, the Holy Spirit knows. Who you're supposed to look like. You're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And as you look into that mirror, the Holy Spirit's saying, You got some anger there, you got some pride there, you got some envy there, you got some lust there. You got to get rid of that stuff so you can look more like Jesus Christ. You gotta get in front of the mirror. James chapter 2, verse 26. James 2, 26. The Bible says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So now we have. Faith, uh, the relationship of faith and works likened to a body with no spirit, right? Um, Have you ever seen a body in a casket? It's lifeless. It's different than sleeping. You come up on somebody sleeping, you just see the life in them. Even if you can't see them breathing sometimes, you just, the body looks different, you know, when you see that that life has gone out, when that breath has gone out, when that spirit has gone out of that body, it's such a shell. It's such like just, it really is like a corpse. It's just, there's nothing going on there. And that's what God says faith without works is. He says, it's like a body with the spirit gone out of it. He says, it's like it's like looking at a body in the casket. It's lifeless. It's not the same as sleeping. Hey, don't answer this one out loud, but... Have you ever seen a believer living in pleasure? You know what the Bible says about a believer living in pleasure? 1 Timothy says, she's dead while she lives. You know, a believer who's only living for himself, you can see the difference. You can tell the difference. Talk to them for five minutes, you'll sense the difference. Because faith without works is dead. There's something different about that person that's not doing what they profess to believe. Now James two twenty, look at it says there. It says, "But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead?" How many people ever heard that? Well, faith without works is dead. You say I got saved by faith, but faith without works is dead. That's a famous objection. If you haven't, you heard it yet. You're gonna hear the objection that faith and works—that you need faith and works to be justified. It can't just be by grace through faith. There's got to be works. You gotta work your way to heaven because James chapter two, faith without works is dead. In fact, Martin Luther had such a hard time with the book of James, he wanted to tear it out of his Bible. He couldn't reconcile James and Romans because Romans is all about faith without works and James is all about faith plus works. So how do you answer this objection? Let's answer it two ways. First, let's answer it the spiritual way, the way we could spiritualize it and maybe answer that guy on the street that's challenging you, it's a spiritual way to understand it as opposed to a doctrinal way. Here's the spiritual way. Go to Romans chapter 4. James, uh, Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Romans 4. The Bible says this about Abraham. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So Paul is dealing here with faith before God. Faith that only God can see, a justification of your sins before God. This is about salvation. And the Apostle Paul reaches back to Abraham as a picture of your salvation. You got saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Abraham was justified there by grace through faith plus nothing. And he says, hey, but that's before God. Only God looks out on this audience and sees who really believes him. I can't. James chapter 2, let's go there now. To James chapter 2. Let's look at the context of what James chapter 2 is talking about. It's not talking about before God, it's talking about before men. James chapter 2, verse 14. James 2 14. The Bible says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding uh, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works the context here is faith before men justification before men because men can't see your faith they could see your works so you tell a guy that's hungry and you say i need something oh just bless you son may you be warmed and filled if you don't do something your faith doesn't do anything for him your works bless him so Romans is about salvation which is faith and justification this way James is about your service it's its works and service and justification this way before men that's the difference now remember chapters 1 to 3 deal with your faith shown outwardly through your works and that's what James chapter 1, 2, and 3 is talking about but that's the spiritual way you want the doctrinal way? Yes, you do. Here's the doctrinal way. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Remember, we said that James is a tribulation book. There's a tribulation context surrounding this book. And in the great tribulation, which is coming soon to a city near you after you're out of here, in the great tribulation, guess what? Salvation is a combination of faith and works. It's a different salvation plan than that's happening today. It's faith plus works. You say, how do I know that? Look at Revelation 14. Look what God says about the saints in Revelation 14, 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints, colon. here are they that keep the commandments of God, works, and the faith of Jesus, faith and Works are characterizing the saints in the tribulation you need to endure in the tribulation you need to continue unto the end of the tribulation you better not side with the antichrist or else you're going to perish in the tribulation your faith has to be shown by your works in the great tribulation here believe on the lord jesus christ now shalt be saved Amen. that's a church blessing but look at uh, chapter 12 of revelation chapter 12 Again, tribulation, chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, that's Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, works, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, faith. Faith plus works. So that's why when you go back to the book of James... And you read in the book of James, chapter 2, verse number 19, he says in James 2.19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. He's saying in the tribulation, it's not going to be enough to just believe. You better be a doer. That's why James talks so much about doer, works, because you need faith. Those are the two key words of the book, faith and works. You need faith and works to survive the great tribulation. That's the doctrinal way to understand what looks like a contradiction in James. So let's go to James chapter 3. Ah, James chapter 3. Now we touch on the tongue. Oh boy. Oh boy. James chapter 3. Let's start at verse 3. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The Lord is pointing here to the power and potential danger of the tongue. This little thing, this little thing, can do more damage than your hands or your feet or your anything. This little thing, this tongue. Um, Look at verse 5. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. You read about all those forest fires in California, you know, see millions of acres burned. You know they all started with one spark? One little spark, maybe it's a cigarette butt, maybe it's a little dry brush and the heat hits it, and one little spark, one little ember, starts burning down millions and millions of acres. My goodness, is that not analogy for what your mouth can do? Run one wrong word, one fit of anger, one shooting off your mouth, guess what? You can do damage infinitely more lasting than just a forest fire you hurt death and life are in the power of the tongue you can bless somebody james says you can curse somebody james says it's all that little tongue and in chinese medicine you know what the tongue reveals what's going on inside you and usually what comes out your tongue is what's going on inside you it's not just, oh, I just, it's because you got something going on in your heart because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What's going on in the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You got some wrong stuff in your heart, it's going to come out of your tongue. So maybe check out your heart so your tongue doesn't burn anybody. Right, doesn't burn anybody. Verse 7 says this, for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. You can tame a dog, you could tame a lion, you could take all these beasts, elephants, and have them do these amazing tricks in the circus. If you could do all those with a brute beast, why can't the people of God tame their tongue? Why can't we get this thing? Under control, that we're ripping each other apart. Bible talks about a generation whose tongue is like a sword and a knife, just cutting people up. Verse 8 says, it's full of deadly poison. Would you like a little poison with your water? Maybe just a little bit of arsenic or a little bit of rat poison mixed in there? He said, No, 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 no. Then watch your mouth. Because that conversation, it might be sipping out them poison. Make sure you're not slipping some poison with the words you're saying. James chapter 4. That one went over good. James chapter 4. <laughs> right? I'm talking to myself because like Jackie Gleason, I'm going to date myself. I got a big mouth. That's my problem. I got a big mouth. And that's what gets me in trouble. Right? James chapter 4. James chapter 4 has the reason for all your problems. You believe it? Right there in James chapter 4. Verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. The reason for all your problems is not the devil. Stop giving him so much credit. The reason for all your problems is you, your lust. He says, you know why you're fighting? You know why you're struggling? It's not because the devil came. It's not because the devil's after you. You're not that spiritual, and he's not that concerned with you. You know what your biggest problem is? The moron you looked at in the mirror this morning or I looked at in the mirror this morning, because clearly I'm the only one that I saw a moron this morning, right? That person you saw in the mirror with their lusts and their selfish attitudes, that's the one that's causing all the strife in your life, all the problems in your life, all the difficulties. It's you. It's you and your lust. That's what he says right there. From whence come wars? We think, oh, the devil. I just, I hate the devil too. But you know what? Nine times out of 10, it's your stupidity, not Satan. And so maybe you need to humble yourself a little bit stop giving the devil so much tr- so much credit and then he jumps in verse number 6 and he says but he giveth more grace see chapter 4 we said was about humility chapter 5 is about prayer because this section is about something inward so if you're the problem and you're your worst enemy humble yourself don't get proud get humble right. verse 6 but he giveth more grace Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble." submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you remember the tribulation draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you cleanse your hands ye sinners and purify your hearts ye double minded they're those double minded people again be afflicted and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness humble yourselves there it is again in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up verses 6 to 10 have the solution to all your problems verse 1 to 3 is the source of all your problems you You, the solution to all your problems, is also you. You know what you have to do? Verse number seven. Submit yourself to God. Your submission is the solution to all your problems. Your pride, your lust is the cause. Your submission is the solution. God will resist the proud and give grace, more grace, unto the lowly. He'll exalt the ones that put themselves down for the glory of God and realize they're lost without Him. Chapters 4 and 5 is your faith shown inwardly through your humility and through your prayer. And until you submit yourself to God, you'll never overcome anything. You could read every Christian book, listen to every service, take every note, uh, make beautiful outlines in your notebook. But until you submit yourself to God and say, God You're above me, I'm under you, I submit to you, you'll never overcome. The solution is submit. I wish I could be better at this, but I think we need a room of people that would just submit themselves to God. Say, God, I'm yours, you're first, I'm last, what do you want for my life? And then my goodness, that would be the solution to everything. God, here's this relationship, I submit myself to you. How do you go wrong? (laughs) Hey, God, here's this job venture. I submit myself to you. How could you go wrong? God, here's this ministry opportunity. I submit it to you. How could it not bring him glory? Right? Submit yourself to God. Because no man can serve two masters. So who's on the throne of your heart? Verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there as a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Hey, if life is that fleeting, shouldn't you give it all to Christ? If all you get is that little dash between two dates, shouldn't you submit yourself to God and have it make some glory out of it? Remember, tribulation context, they're running from the Antichrist He's saying, don't sell your soul for bread, it's just a vapor. Endure to the end and God will recompense you. Chapter 5. We'll finish right here. Chapter 5, verse 7. Chapter 5, we see how the book begins and ends with the context of the Great Tribulation. 5-7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. James chapter 5, verse 7. God is depicted as a husbandman waiting to reap a harvest out of a vine Revelation 14 talks about him thrusting in his sickle and reaping because the vine of the earth is ripe. Tribulation Israel chapter 5 verse 7 there's an allusion also to the early and latter rain. That's what's going to come with the second advent. God's going to dump a whole lot of rain on a desert and it's going to blossom like a rose. That's literal. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not Pentecost. That's some literal rain that's coming at the second coming of Christ. Chapter, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. Now we've got a reference to Job, a type of Israel in the Great Tribulation. He's persecuted by Satan while the devil is in the earth, just like Israel will be persecuted by Satan while the devil is roaming around the earth. Right? Job is a perfect parallel of the nation of Israel. 42 chapters of Job, 42 months of Great Tribulation. And in verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay yea, nay nay, nay nay, let your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Remember your context. That's a warning not to pledge allegiance to the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. You'll be condemned. That's what that's about. Verse 13 is any among you if any among you afflicted let him pray Is any merry let him sing psalms is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Notice it says faults, not sins. And pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice the importance of prayer being talked about in this terrible time. Again, faith shown inwardly. Then verse 17, Elias, meaning Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Three and a half years. That's the time of the Great Tribulation. This section ends with a reference to Elijah, who will be on the earth during the three and a half years of Great Tribulation. Now in the past... He stopped the rain under King Ahab, who was a terrible type of Antichrist, who tried to kill him. And he will stop the rain under the Antichrist, who will cut Elijah's head off. That's what's going to happen in the future. So there's so much about the tribulation there. So let me just give you one big idea, and we'll go home on this. One big idea from the book of James, all right? Here it is. Let me finish my water and build some suspense. What Israel needs to overcome in the great tribulation, you need to overcome in your tribulation. That's it. What Israel needs to overcome in the great tribulation time period, you need to overcome and you could learn to overcome in your tribulation that you experience down here. I'll give you an example. James 5.16, he says, Pray one for another that ye may be healed. Now, what's going on doctrinally in the Great Tribulation? There's plagues, there's sicknesses, there's illnesses, there's all these things going on in the Great Tribulation, and he's saying right there, prayer can heal you. Prayer can heal you. That's a doctrinal thing that's going to go on during the Great Tribulation. Well, go to Romans 15. We'll end with this verse. That's for the time period of great tribulation. Well, what about when I experience tribulation? What about when I get the bad report for the doctor or my family forsakes me or I lose my job for my faith or when I go through something down here? Romans 15, verse 30, the Bible says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. That may come unto you by the will of God, with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Well, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. There's Paul in the church age, and he's saying, spiritually, there will be problems you'll face in your tribulation. You know what he's asking for there? Prayer. He's saying let's pray for each other because prayer can help you now in the tribulation prayer can actually heal you doctrinally but it can help me here it can heal my broken heart can heal me of some my heavy heart it can help me so what israel needs to overcome in the great tribulation i need to help overcome in my tribulation and i just pulled prayer out as a good example they're going to need it literally and you're going to need it too So my lesson then, or my last takeaway is, if we're supposed to learn from Israel, don't wrongly divide the word of truth. Don't cut books like James out of the Bible because that's not for the church. No, you're an idiot. You learn from it. You can learn from other people's mail. You can learn great things about how to survive your tribulation by seeing how Israel is told to survive and overcome in their tribulation. So rightly divide the word of truth and learn from all of it. Don't just... Cut it out of your Bible because it's not written to you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you. We just thank you for this little book of James, this little book of Proverbs, so speak, in the New Testament. Pray, Lord, we could take something home with it. Help us to, if there's anything, Lord, help us to pray one for another. Help us to keep that a spirit of prayer among ourselves, Lord, that we might be able to overcome the spirit of Antichrist in the world today. Thankful, Lord, that I'll never face that great tribulation. But I know your people go through great problems and great trials down here, Father. I pray we might learn how to overcome from books like James. In Jesus' name, Amen.